So you can't take it with you. I got to thinking about that phrase a lot this week as I prepared for today's message. And I wondered where it came from. So I did a little bit of digging. And it's actually from a children's book called Masterman Ready, written in 1841 by a man named Frederick Marriott. This book is about a family who is shipwrecked on a deserted island, kind of like Robinson Crusoe style. And they really only survive because of a sailor named Masterman Ready. Uh, And then in 1936, there was a play written called You Can't Take It With You. And that really popularized the saying. And in 1938, uh, Frank Capra made a movie called You Can't Take It With You. Um, Which I love old movies, but I've never seen this one before. But I don't think you can go wrong with Jimmy Stewart and Lionel Barrymore and Frank Capra. So it's going to be on my to-watch list now. Um, The kids will be thrilled, I'm sure, for our next movie night. (laughs) And I don't know if the writer of the book in 1841, or if the writers of the play, or if Frank Capra were inspired by scripture in any way, but I'm pretty sure that the artist who drew this cartoon that I found probably was. Yeah. There's no way we're getting all that stuff past security to the Golden Gates. So um, I think it's a good illustration for our scripture lesson today from the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Before we read it, let us pray. Dear Lord, may the meditations of our hearts and our minds be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So many of you may remember this parable as uh, the parable of the rich fool. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with, the, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is God's word for God's people. To put this scripture in a little bit of context, earlier in the chapter, Jesus had been teaching his disciples, and crowds of thousands had gathered to hear him. They were really trampling over themselves to get close to Jesus and hear these messages. Uh, And he was talking to them about 
the difference between earthly matters and eternal ones. He was talking about hypocrisy and fear of where we might be, um, fear that we might not have enough, and the idea that with God there is always enough. And this man, who clearly wasn't listening, steps forward and in verse 13 tells, not asks, but tells Jesus to make his brother divide his inheritance with him. So we don't have all the details, whatever the conflict is, between these two brothers, but we know from Deuteronomy chapter 21 that the eldest brother, according to Jewish law, uh, is to get a double portion of the estate. So we can surmise this was the younger brother, right, who thought that he should be given more than what he was about to get. So it wasn't unusual for rabbis at the time to arbitrate these kinds of disputes for families. And Jesus, being a, a rabbi, that's why the man came to him, right? He rolls up like it's his own little personal episode. And he's in small claims court. And Jesus is going to tell to uh, make sure uh, he is given what he feels he has deserved. But Jesus is having none of it. He took this as yet another opportunity to show that he was not your typical rabbi. He responds in verse 14, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? Now the New Revised Standard Version we read today, translated as friend, very diplomatically, I think. Um, other translations translate it as man, which can be nice or not so nice, depending on the context. But I think that the message translation really captures the impatience that scholars believe Jesus felt at this point. It reads, Mr., what makes you think that it is any of my business to be a judge or mediator for you? Jesus is trying to show that he is a judge not of these earthly matters, but of the kingdom of God. And so he shares this parable that, for me, is a lesson about priorities. So often Christians have two different views of money. Some people take the prosperity view and preach that God wants us to be wealthy and successful and blessed. And they take particular verses out of context and the idea being that you just need to call upon these promises to, like, manifest wealth in your life for yourself. And that's, that's a problematic view of money. And then other people swing way in the other direction and they take this poverty view of money and say that to be a true Christian, you really shouldn't be wealthy. You can't enjoy life. You can't have a lot of money. Um, and their idea is that the entirety of the Christian life uh, should be summed up with sacrifice and suffering. And that is equally problematic. When Jesus talks about money, and he talks about it quite a bit, he addresses the heart and the motivation. The Christian life doesn't demand poverty. Being like Jesus has nothing to do with how much money you have. Uh, being rich doesn't make you a sinner any more than being poor would make you a saint. Money is a tool. And the biblical view of it isn't about how much you have, but about what you do with it. 
The issue we get into this parable is not that the man is rich. It's an issue of his heart and his motivation. You see, at the beginning of the parable, he has this really abundant crop that comes in. And he doesn't have enough room to store it all. So he starts talking to himself. Which, by the way, is kind of a spoiler alert for how the story is going to end for him. There's like six interior monologues in Luke where a character talks to themselves like this, and it doesn't usually end well for the character that's talking to themselves. So um, he says to himself, what shall I do? I don't have anywhere to put this. Uh, I know. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and I'll store all my grain and my goods and it'll be enough that I don't have to work anymore and I can just kick back and relax and I am taken care of. And on its surface, this seems really logical. It seems wise that he is planning for his future. So there's no evidence that this farmer was a bad guy. Um, He doesn't cheat his employees. There's no suggestion that he came into this abundance in some sort of underhanded way. Um, He was wonderfully successful. The issue is that he never recognizes God's provision in his abundance. God had sent just the right amount of rain and sunshine for this crop. God had kept pests off of his farm. He doesn't recognize any of the way God was at work in this abundance that he had received. Nor does he recognize how his abundance might help his neighbors. It would have been customary in a first century Jewish community for him to be concerned with caring for the widow and the orphan. And there is none of that in his interior dialogue. We don't know if his neighbors also had an abundant crop or if they were struggling. He only thinks about himself. In fact, there are about 54 words in this parable in the original Greek, and fully 18 of them are first person. I, me, myself. He was self-centered rather than God-centered. There was also no thought of stewardship, no understanding that he was merely a steward of God's possessions and that he should share those blessings with other people. So I think this is a good spot to share our testimony for this week as Rick and Susan Cade talk about stewardship and what it means for them. I'm Susan Cade. And I'm Rick Cade. We've been members of AUMC for 20 years approximately, and we love our church family. Stewardship to me means taking care of something. It's a responsibility. And in a world of, uh, of our money and our giving, uh, I don't think of it that way, our money. I think of it as God's money and I am responsible for handling God's money. We've been uh, extremely blessed by God. Uh, We we give and God gives back so much more to us. We give again, God gives back. Uh, But it's a a responsibility of uh, taking care of what uh, 
what God has done for us. The reason we give to AMC is two or three different things. The first thing is it's biblical. God uh, has set out a tithe as something that he would require of his people and we find that as we have tithed and given to the church God has blessed us abundantly and so we feel like we want to tell people about that. Uh, the second thing is just generally as a business the church does need to pay their bills and they need to pay their workers and how will that happen unless the congregation does provide money to do that? And thirdly, Rick told me recently he read this um, statistic that people who give and have developed a spirit of generosity live longer. We uh, live day to day blessed by being members of this church. It's a uh, it's a family uh, feeling that uh, we are all Christians and the church uh, makes us feel warm and it is a it's an honor to give to the church and uh, in turn we get a great blessing and feeling the warmth of giving is uh, is hard to, to state when it happened but there's a time when in life when instead of giving, uh, getting a gift, uh, which you loved as a kid, that you get more out of giving gifts. One of the reasons that AUMC is so spectacular is our missions that we're involved in. We love our community. And so when we can reach out and, and jump into a mission that provides for food or homeless, any number of things that go on here at AUMC, then you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, God does want us to, to live abundantly and that we should bless others in that same way. And so when we are able to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we're overwhelmed with the abundance and love of God. And these missions can't happen unless the church as a whole gives. Uh, they all need support, all the missions do, and uh, uh, the warmth that you give uh, from giving is overwhelming. It is. to Rick and Susan for sharing their heart with us. Uh, I feel like what they're talking about in the abundance of God in their lives, leading them to give, which in turn leads to that feeling of joy within, is really what's missing in this parable of the rich fool. That's, that's the part that he is lacking when he thinks about his harvest. But you know, it really isn't hard to sympathize and really identify with the rich fool? I mean, he was a good farmer. Why shouldn't he enjoy the fruits of his labor? And it's easy to get caught up in what we do to provide for ourselves and how hard we work for what we have.
a little easy <laughs> to forget uh, that it really just all comes from God. And the true irony is that in the verse 19, in his self-talk, he says, I will eat, drink, and be merry. But he forgot the second half of that verse that actually comes from Isaiah 22:13. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. God responds to the farmer's self-centeredness by calling him a fool and saying, tonight your life will be demanded from you. And the Greek word for demanded that's used there, apaiteo, is not just to demand something, but it's actually to demand something back, something that has been lent, implying that everything we have, indeed, even our very lives, from God. The farmer forgot that. And I think that we forget that sometimes. The man thought that he had a storage problem, right? Just didn't have enough place to store everything, so let's build some bigger barns. But what he really had was a spiritual problem. He lived his life as if God didn't exist. And that's really what, what is meant by the word fool. Today, we think of a fool as a silly person, a, a stupid person. But in Psalm 14, 1, we read, fools say in their heart, there is no God. His thought process never included God. And like us, maybe he went to church. Maybe he even gave money to church. But his life, his priorities, his inner thoughts that we get to hear, and thus his actions, did not reflect that he had God and money in the right order. The message translation sums up this parable in a really great way. That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. So, how do we fill our barn with God? Jesus tells us as the parable ends that we are to be rich toward God. Well, what does that mean? Being rich toward God. Being rich towards God is knowing God and God's word so well that it transforms our life so that God works within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being rich toward God means valuing what and who God values and treasuring what God treasures. Being rich toward God is cherishing more than any earthly treasure that gift of salvation offered through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This gift that is born out of God's extravagant love for each and every one of us. That love that when I really like, try to sit and think about it is unfathomable because of how vast it is. Our human minds just can't really wrap around how big God's love is for us. And so I think extravagant is a really good word for it. Extravagant means without restraint, with no limits. 
And that's how God loves us. With no restraint, no limits, with such abundance that he gave his only son for the world, for us, for you. How do you respond to that? In chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul writes about two different ways of living as a response to this love of God. The first is that you can live like the fool, as if God doesn't have an impact on your daily life, guided by your own selfish desires. And when we are motivated by selfishness, those crops that we harvest, they get used up, often with nothing lasting to show for it. Things are finite. And if your focus is inward, can you ever really be truly satisfied or ever really get enough? Isn't the finish line going to always keep moving a little more? The next generation of the coolest gadget? No matter how much wealth or stuff you acquire, no matter how big your barn is, you still can't take it with you. The second way is to live by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, which is not finite. When the fruit of the Spirit is harvested, there is abundance. When we share love, it doesn't result in less love. It multiplies and creates more love. The same is true for joy and peace and kindness. And the same is true for generosity. These are the resources that are offered by the Spirit of God that live within us. And these are the investments that will strengthen our relationship with God and our relationships with other people, which can have an impact for generations long after we are gone. Which way will you live in response to God? Will you fill your barn with earth, earthly treasures, knowing that you can't take it with you? Or will you live richly toward God, investing your time, your talent, and your treasure into God's kingdom and to God's people? Let us pray. Eternal God, we pray that we will make stewardship a way of life. We acknowledge you as the source of all we have and all that we are. Help us, O oh God, to place you first in our lives by becoming more prayerful, more focused on loving and caring for our families and our neighbors, and by becoming less preoccupied with material things. Help us to hear your call to be good stewards and managers of all of your gifts. Help us to make your priorities our priorities and to put our faith into action. God, help us plan to give back the talents, treasures, and time with which we have been blessed. May we serve you and pray with a joyful spirit of mind and of heart. Amen.